You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 244 of The Bowery Boys. The rise of the Fifth Avenue mansions. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're taking you on a journey down the ritziest street in New York City. Fifth Avenue, uh, known better today for department stores and boutiques, and a perfect place to visit because the holidays are rolling around. Right, it's very seasonally appropriate because when one thinks Fifth Avenue, one does think of the extravagant show windows of the department stores, strolling by Saks, Lord & Taylor. Very tasteful holiday displays. However, Fifth Avenue is also famous and cherished as an address uh, these days for apartment buildings, but for most of the 19th century and very early 20th century as the addresses of spectacular homes, mansions, and townhouses of some of the country's wealthiest families. It was once called Millionaire's Row because so many people of great wealth, of new wealth, lived along the street in houses that are Almost impossible to imagine today. In fact, when Greg and I first saw each other today, he said, I really need to start thinking of other words for extravagance. (laughs) Lavish. (laughs) Let's not say the word lavish or extravagant. Let's like cut Mm. them out of the show. Okay. How about Beaux-Arts? We can say Beaux-Arts as many times as we want. So today in in this episode, we'll be tackling the story of how Fifth Avenue developed uh, physically, how was it built, but also how and where were these mansions constructed? It's interesting because this is a story that moves geographically and chronologically at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, we will be starting the show north of Washington Square, and we will be ending the show at the top of Central Park, but staying the whole time on Fifth Avenue. So, spoiler alert, uh, this is part one of a two-part miniseries where we'll be tackling Fifth Avenue's history as a residence. This is the rise of the Fifth Avenue mansions. You'll never guess what part two is going to be called. (laughs) So, hop in our carriage as we roll along New York's wealthiest street and witness the rise of the Fifth Avenue mansions. So, Tom, let's situate this show. Of course, it is on Fifth Avenue, which is the spine of New York. As But Fifth Avenue, where is it located and what is its importance to the New York City grid plan? Well, thank you for asking me to situate, Greg. Mm-hmm. Um, Fifth Avenue is 6.75 miles long. It stretches from Washington Square North at its base to 142nd Street, straight up the middle of Manhattan, dividing addresses on side streets between east and west. That is to say, for those who have missed this chapter, um, that an address that is on West 47th Street will be west of Fifth Avenue as opposed to East 47th Street, which would be east of Fifth Avenue. 
It took me a while to figure that out when I first moved to New York, by the way. But luckily, one West 47th is not that far from one East 47th. No, spitting distance. (laughs) Yes. Now, uh, notably, Fifth Avenue appears in the commissioner's plan of 1811, although it was obviously not constructed all at once, as we've been talking about in a range of shows recently. Even though this plan was adopted in 1811, it took many decades for the streets to actually be constructed. And that's because at the time of the plan, uh, much of the city was located south of Canal Street. So the first section of Fifth Avenue wouldn't even be built until the 1820s. The first section from Washington Square Park North to 13th Street opened in 1824. So we're about to spend a lot of time talking about people with a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And, Apologies. And Fifth Avenue will be where they are drawn to. But before the 1820s, before Fifth Avenue existed, uh, where was their little enclave here in the city? Well, and even when it did finally exist in the 1820s, it's not like it attracted all of the city's wealthy families all at once. In the 1820s, many wealthy families were living down around Battery Park. Um, There were others living on Broadway. There were some newly fashionable streets farther north near Bond Street. And let's not forget about, you know, the people of means who also lived on farms and estates um, in these upper reaches of the city that were still not really considered part of the city yet. Uh, We've talked about Richmond Hill, Hamilton Grange, farms that were owned by the Stuyvesants and in many others. So there were many prominent landowners who had farms and vast estates way up here. Many of them, of course, would cash in in a big way in the decades to come. Thanks to the grid plan. Right. So the first section of Fifth Avenue opened in 1824. Yes, it opened from just north of the burial ground that predated Washington Square Park Mm -hmm. up to 13th Street in 1824. And that covered the old Minetta Brook that used to babble down through here and cut through the burial ground and later, you know, was covered over when they transformed uh, the burial ground into a military parade ground in 1826. And, you know, just five years later, the University of the City of New York uh, would arrive along the eastern section of that parade ground. That would, of course, become New York University, NYU, which is still around Washington Square Park today. All over, Mm -hmm. yes. And prominent families... Um, And wealthy merchants were drawn to the perimeters of this parade ground, first to the southern side and then along the north. In the 1830s, uh, there were fine Greek revival homes that were built all along the northern edge of of the parade ground. And many of these fine homes are still with us today. It's one of the earliest collection of townhouses that still survive in all of New York. And built with such uniformity. We really need to do a show just on them. Yeah, they all look exactly the same. And that today, many of those are part of the NYU system as well. But I'm taking us away now, Greg, from Washington Square Park, because Washington Square Park serves as the base of Fifth Avenue, which, which rises from the middle of it. And considering the money that would be on Fifth Avenue, you can see it like a little seed that begins at Washington Square Park and then grows northward. Yes, and there were some prominent families. We're talking here in the 1830s as people are moving along the perimeter of the park here. Well, in the same time, families started constructing fine residences at the at this first stretch of Fifth Avenue. Families like the Rhinelander family, who built at the northwest corner of the park in Fifth Avenue at 1415 Washington Square Park, um, in a home that was designed by Richard Upjohn, who had designed Trinity Church. The home faced right into Washington Square Park and amazingly survived until 1953. And the Rhinelanders were an old family that were sugar manufacturers during the Revolutionary War in particular. And another old family that's name still hangs over the area today were the Brevorts. Mm -hmm. They were an old Dutch family who'd been living here since the 1630s. They would be farmers, but amass really their fortune by holding on to their land and by watching their farmland become part of the city. And it is not an exaggeration to say that old Henry Brevoort um, in the first decades of the 19th century was not happy about the grid plan. His old orchard was on 4th Avenue and 11th Street. To this day, 11th Street does not cut through 
between Broadway and 4th Avenue because he managed to block the road from going through his orchard. And today that land is owned by Grace Church. He wasn't happy about it at the time, but his family, of course, and subsequent generations would be very happy about the fact that the streets were getting rammed through the old orchard uh, because they would cash out in a big way. When he died in 1841, his family's land, which was about 11 acres north of today's Washington Square Park, was valued at over a million dollars in 1841. So they were making money off of this new heightened real estate value. And then, of course, they were living on Fifth Avenue as well. Yes, his son, Henry Jr., and his children occupied several homes uh, along or near Fifth Avenue, including Henry Jr.'s Greek Revival-style home, which was at the northwest corner of Fifth and Ninth Street. And that survived until 1925. It's a beautiful mm. mansion. So we have the Rhinelanders, we have the Brevorts. Now, these are old New York families that are being attracted to Fifth Avenue because of their association to the row along Washington Square here. Right, but, but also because here at the base of Fifth Avenue... The lots were larger, and there was nothing built yet. So they were at liberty to build their dream homes. Sky's the limit. And during the 1830s and 40s, other big names would move into the neighborhood, like James Lennox, who built at 53 Fifth Avenue at the northeast corner of 12th Street. Uh, And in there, he would start amassing his incredible library. And as these families moved into this new neighborhood— Churches followed, such as the Episcopal Church of the Ascension, which opened on 10th Street in 1841, and the Presbyterian Church, which opened in 1846 between 11th and 12th. So the Episcopal Church and the Presbyterians, they were catering to these wealthy families who were constructing their new residences along this stretch. It's interesting how houses of worship become very instrumental to these wealthy neighborhoods and become anchors for them. Well, because also, for the most part, people were walking to church. So they also wanted their local church to reflect the, you know, the grandeur of their homes. Um, Now, was it all residences? No. Something else would follow that's very interesting. Hotels. And the first one, unsurprisingly, was called the Brevoort Hotel. Uh, It opened in 1854 at the northeast corner of 8th and 5th. And soon after, there would also be restaurants, including Delmonico's, which opened in 1861 in a former mansion, which was located at the northeast corner of 5th and 14th. Now, if I recall from a podcast I recorded a few years ago on Mark Twain's New York, mm-hmm. I believe he later in life lived in a mansion here on Fifth Avenue in this like lower quadrant. Yes, at 9th Street. He lived at, at 21 Fifth at the very end of his life, from 1904 to 1908. What I find really amusing about this is we're about to speak about the grand Gilded Age, uh, about the influx of money that's coming into the city. Mark Twain was the man who coined the phrase Gilded Age in a story that he wrote in the 1860s. And he was an easily recognizable person walking the streets in his white suits because he believed that they were more hygienic. So imagine seeing... Mark Twain in his white suit just strolling along Fifth Avenue here at the turn of the century. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I want to rewind 1830s and 40s. We have the first big families moving into this stretch of Fifth that goes up to about 14th Street. Mm -hmm. And it only went that far because that's as far as it had been constructed. Now, in 1837, Fifth was extended from 14th up to 23rd Street. So there was another section opened. But development, of course, didn't happen immediately. It really wasn't until Madison Square opened at 23rd and 5th in 1847 uh, that development along that stretch really picked up speed. And like Washington Square, also the development around the square because it would attract, again, the city's top families to townhouses lining the square. Well, as would happen throughout this story, you know, the newest wealthy people would want to live in an area that was new and finer and that they could design a place themselves. But they wanted to stay near Fifth Avenue, which by this point already had a bit of a cachet to it. And the area around Madison Square would stay chic through really the 1880s. But when, you know, when we think about those blocks, right, the area north of Washington Square has a very residential feel. Mm-hmm. But when you go from 14th up to 23rd, it's a different mood, right? Oh, yeah. 
And it was even back then, you know, in the 1860s, there was a more commercial vibe on that stretch of Fifth Avenue. There was even retail intermixed among some of the houses. There was retail, there were apartment buildings that opened uh, in the 1870s, and there was also the Fifth Avenue Hotel right next to Madison Square, which opened in 1859 and became the social epicenter of the city. Yeah, it really was the center so much so that its rooms would frequently be filled with political machinations on the national level. So this was kind of the heart of New York, especially during the Civil War and a little bit afterwards. But Fifth Avenue is, of course, galloping up past it. Just when you think you know where it ends, they just keep extending (laughs) it, you know? And families kept constructing on the newly opened blocks that they could get their hands on. Families with a lot of money, like Greg, the Astor family. For it was in the 1850s that brothers William Astor and John Jacob Astor III both built family townhouses, mansions, on the same block next to each other on the western side of Fifth Avenue between 33rd and 34th Street. William Astor's was a handsome four-story brownstone that was constructed in 1856, and John Jacob Astor III built a brick mansion two years later in 1858. Now, wait a minute. The 1850s? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, but the center of New York culture and society was further down south. That almost makes them seem like pioneers. Yeah, they had lived down on Lafayette Street, um, and they sensed that they were kind of in a backwater at that point. The center of society had really moved and shifted much farther north, and if they were going to stay in the center of the city's social life, they needed to get ahead of it physically. So they're here at 34th and 5th, and these must have been hugely sumptuous houses because they had all the space, right? Except when you look at the photos, and you will be putting them on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, you know, I was sort of surprised at how dignified, conservative these townhouses were. They don't really strike me as extravagant. That would follow soon after, and still in the same neighborhood. For example, just across 34th Street from the Astors, A.T. Stewart, the department store giant, built himself an enormous 55-room marble mansion that was completed in 1869. I'll read the description from, from a book called Fifth Avenue, The Best Address by Jerry Patterson. Stewart's Fifth Avenue house, which had its long side on West 34th Street, was an extraordinary creation for a childless couple who seldom, if ever, entertained. 55 rooms, many of them lined with marble. The ceilings, even in the bedrooms, were nearly 19 feet high. Every room was a thicket of rosewood furniture and tufted upholstery and bric-a-brac. Although there was an art gallery, the Stewart's vast collection of paintings, at least 179 works, many of them colossal size, white marble statuary and bronzes overflowed into every room. When wall space ran out, paintings were angled against easels and even on the floor against statues. So that the house was just like an over-the-top <laughs> mess. Meanwhile, these pioneers of upper crust housing are only a couple blocks west of a train line, right? Which is running up 4th Avenue. That's right. So that's where we are, Greg. It's the 1850s. We've got the Astors at, you know, between 33rd and 34th on 5th, bringing society up around them. And the Astors would stay here in their homes for several decades. They would watch 5th Avenue south of them transform a bit. But, say, by the 1890s, they were ready to keep moving north. Not to disparage them, but let's just say by the 1890s, the Astors weren't the hottest family in the social registry. Which brings us to this next point, which was a feud between said brothers, or really their children, over who the real Mrs. Astor was. We don't have time to get into that story right now. In fact, we cover it in two different shows, one on the Astors and one on the complicated history of the Waldorf Astoria. But let's just say that this feud in the 1890s led to the demolition of both of these houses of Astor and the replacement first by the Waldorf Hotel in 1893 at 33rd and 5th, and then in 1897, the construction of the even more opulent Astoria Hotel. 
they would be joined to create the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which was the country's most famous, most over the top, with a thousand rooms, all kinds of banquet rooms for social engagements and balls. It was more than a hotel. It was a place to entertain, to throw lavish dinner parties. And it had been designed by Henry Hardenberg in the German Renaissance style. You can hardly believe it when you see photos of this thing. And the Waldorf Astoria was able to thrive. It was the crown of New York because by that time, Fifth Avenue was the destination for the upper 10, as they say. The wealthiest and blue-bloodiest of all New York families. Ew. (laughs) And the Waldorf Astoria would continue to function for a number of decades. But the thing is, Greg, because we're focusing not on hotels in this show, we're focusing on the mansions of Fifth Avenue. Here we are now in 1890s. The Astors have demolished their homes here. It's not like they're leaving town. They have to build new mansions and they stay on Fifth Avenue. They just head much farther north. But back in the 1850s, when the Astors first built upon this corner at 34th and 5th Avenue, unbeknownst to them, perhaps, or maybe they didn't know what they were about to start, they would open the floodgates. Suddenly, this distant northern area that's far from City Hall, this area of 5th Avenue that is barely developed, would become instantly viable as a place to build the most extravagant homes in the United States, especially if you were a member of one of New York's favored families. We'll continue our ride up Fifth Avenue to show you some of the most ostentatious and even absurd houses that would ever be on Fifth Avenue. We'll get kicked out of those houses after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest Internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and Internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Now, Tom, we're about to speak about a lot of rich people. Great. And so let's take a big step back and explain why there are so many more rich people in New York City starting in the 1860s and going into the rest of the century. Into the Gilded Age. Yes. So this is this period is known as the Gilded Age, as we've said. It has a lot to do with money that came into New York during the Civil War and afterwards. A lot of people were enriched by the war and, of course, Reconstruction. 
It was New York banks, New York-controlled factories that were funding the rebuilding efforts. Then you had the ramifications of the Industrial Revolution, which was changing all sorts of manufacturing in a variety of different industries. Resulting in a lot of magnets, right? There were a lot <laughs> of magnets being thrown around. There was a steel magnet. There was a copper magnet. You know, every magnet or titan you know, made their fortune, came to New York, and built themselves a lavish residence. Was there a refrigerator magnet? There were several of them. <laughs> Notably, a family that I'm going to mention a lot in this podcast, just generally speaking, the Vanderbilts. I speak. I feel like I speak about the Vanderbilts more than my own family at a certain point. <laughs> we'll talk about that after the show. <laughs> the Vanderbilts built their vast wealth on transportation, first from ferries and steamships, and then, of course, eventually the railroad. We talked about the Astors. They built their fortune on, well, initially, beaver trading, mm -hmm. uh, but then acquiring great land and a fortune from the land, but then getting into the hotel business, too. Long before the Waldorf Astoria, they were operating the Astor House downtown. And, you know, and finally, just real estate itself. As the land becomes more valued... Those who own it are making a lot more money. I find it interesting. You know, we were talking about the Astors living at 34th across the street from A.T. Stewart. They looked down on A.T. Stewart because he was in trade. You know, he was, he was basically, in their eyes, a glorified shopkeeper who had made it big. And they were landed, like landed gentry, you know, sure. as if it was like old Europe or something, not really appreciating the fact that just a couple generations before, you know, the man who built their vast fortune was a trader himself, was in, himself in beavers. And was himself treated this way by the older families. All this to say that within a couple decades, from the moment that the Astors built their mansions here at 34th and 5th in the late 1850s to about the 1880s, this area from 5th Avenue, 34th Street, up to 59th Street, will radically transform. Now, if you lived in New York in the 1860s, this would have been quite a shocking turn for you. You would have perhaps known this area of mid-Manhattan for, you know, the old botanical garden that sat here in the early 19th century. You might know it for the old Jesuit monastery that sat here. Wow, you make it sound so idyllic, Greg, but all of that in the mid-century was just replaced by rich people moving farther north? Yeah, Is that what's going on? Right, eventually, that's correct. During the 1860s and 1870s, the greatest concentration of these mansions would have been just north of the Astors in the neighborhood we call Murray Hill, Fifth Avenue between 34th and 42nd Street. And some of this, of course, spilling over even onto Madison Avenue, which was just east. This transformation happened so rapidly that in 1863, that was the Civil War draft riots. And do you remember one of the most onerous, most horrible moments was when rioters burnt down the, the children's orphanage? Near today's Bryant Park. Right. Well, that was at Fifth Avenue between 42nd and 43rd Street, okay? 1863. A decade later, most of the, the blocks surrounding that, of course, that had been completely demolished. Now that land was valuable property for the nouveau riche. So that's the 1860s, 1870s. So up to 42nd Street, that concentration is here at Murray Hill. After the 1880s, though, with most of those lots sold, like there wasn't an inch of space to give to another rich person. So then those trendier lots moved north of 42nd Street to 59th Street, and of course, eventually further. What's especially interesting about this new wealthy development that's happening right here at the Gilded Age is that it's being confined by some rather unusual borders that were shaping the city at this time. Millionaire's Row, as mm -hmm. they would eventually call it, was actually just, I would say, a, a rather narrow corridor. Wait, what were these unusual borders that you're alluding to here? What was constraining... Uh, Fifth Avenue. Well, just imagine that you were a new homeowner. You're going to build a house. You're going to sink a lot of fortune into building a brand new house. Okay. Here are the things that you're contending with around you. Say you're at 42nd and 5th, for okay. instance. Okay. Two blocks to the east is Grand Central Station. Of course, later Grand Central Terminal. 
And for decades, their tracks were unburied. They were at street level, or then they later would be like lowered into the ground, but they wouldn't be covered. Okay, so you have okay, this so loud and messy, a huge scar. And so for uh, many years, there was no wealthy development into that period until, of course, those tracks would be buried. Now, by the 1870s, if you're this wealthy homeowner at 42nd and y- Fifth, yeah, another barrier to your finery, is over on 6th Avenue, just one avenue west. Because in the 1870s, they built an elevated train that ran up all the way to 59th Street. Thus, all the property values around the elevated train were obviously much lower. But the 6th Avenue elevated stopped at Central Park, right? So was that a barrier to the growth of 5th Avenue as well? Well, initially, it wasn't a deterrent because in 1858, when that southern section was opened, no one really even thought about building a new house near Central Park at that time. However, as people began building up Fifth Avenue, then that proximity to the park became a rather desired destination because now you would be facing into the park and all of its beauty. By the 1880s, it was almost like Fifth Avenue was a a promenade into the park itself. And the rich populations around it even affected the dynamic of the park in the early days. It was a place for the wealthy to ride their carriages through. And there was certainly no signs of playgrounds or other quote-unquote common park features that we know today. So Central Park, in a way, became a de facto component of Fifth Avenue living. Right from the moment that it opened to the public in the late 1850s. Yeah, so now imagine this corridor, Mm -hmm. this millionaire's row, topped with Central Park, and then the whole avenue embraced by huge mansions, exceptional townhouses, and of course, churches and hotels that sort of were kept up in the same spirit as those houses. This, in the Gilded Age, became the domain of the rich. Now, there were other enclaves of wealthy people in New York City, like you mentioned. We forgot to mention Gramercy Park, which was another really big one. Mm -hmm. But this became the center of wealth and the center of rigid societal practices. And by rigid society, you're you're referring to like Mrs. Astor's 400 list of, you know, the... The, the families that had made the list were on the list, were off the list. Right. Like the social progress of the wealthy during this period, the arranged marriages into these families, almost like business transactions, the doggy dog world of just trying to advance through society for your own personal gain and the legacy of your family. Which is often romanticized and is, you know, present in countless 19th century novels. The world of Edith Wharton plays out here on Fifth Avenue. So these folk, these social climbing, wealthy folk, built hundreds of sumptuous structures around here in a variety of different styles, largely made of brownstone and marble, but they were not in anything that I would call an American style, which kind of didn't exist. It was all homage to European living. The standard bearers of architectural style that would become known as the Beaux-Arts. Ah, there we go. And at the risk of being repetitive here, you're talking about these sumptuous residences that were located along Fifth Avenue between 42nd Street and 59th Street. Yes. Because there are still existing structures and mansions that were built north of 59th Street. And I feel like those are easy to conjure in the mind, those over-the-top mansions. But these, I'm having a harder time because really they don't, for the most part, exist any longer. And these predated those mansions. I mean, today you think Fifth Avenue, you think, you know, Saks Fifth Avenue, you think Rockefeller Center, you think, you know, whatever, like a Sabaro's Pizza, you think Trump Tower. But (laughs) if you have to. (laughs) But strip all of this away Mm -hmm. and just imagine block after block of single family homes. Some of them would be in a traditional brownstone style. Like a townhouse. Sure. But then others would be freestanding houses surrounded by gardens. According to Michael Catherine's in the book Great Houses of New York, quote, these aristocratic houses were more than just large. They were presentation stages for spectacular trappings of the ruling class. 
So it's actually unusual to think of a quote-unquote urban mansion today. You know, most large houses were on estates in upper Manhattan or in other places. You didn't see this kind of architecture with such audacity to be placed on an entire block, for instance. Well, for one reason, because you were so close to the sidewalk. Anybody Mm -hmm. could just walk by and look in your windows. And because of that, you know, many of the primary entrances were actually off of the street level. You had to walk up to the main entrance to get off the street level so that people couldn't just peek in at you in your ballroom. Yeah, it's it's interesting, this rural versus urban dynamic, because these houses look like they should have been out in a grand estate surrounded by nothing but nature, right? These houses would have large staffs. They would have dozens of rooms decorated in tapestries and artwork of all different kinds. But they were in the middle of New York, and they needed practical elements designed for them. So you had alleyways for trash collection. You had connections to sewer and, of course, later electrical systems. These were components of these large houses that you didn't quite have in more of these like ultra-wealthy enclaves, like, say, Newport, where the houses were just essentially surrounded by lush acreage. You were literally surrounded here, if not attached to, other opulent homes. In many cases, you needed them because you did share certain services. Okay, so I'm seeing it now, stretching from 42nd up to 59th, just beautiful townhouses on both sides of the avenue. Right, both sides of the avenue. Now, there were a few structures that were not homes, but very few, but very notable. One of them was down on 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, actually. That's where I live. (laughs) That's where you live. Yeah, your theoretical you lives on that corner. Well, if you had lived there before 1900, you would have lived across the street from the Murray Hill Reservoir, which was a gigantic container of water housed in an Egyptian-inspired reservoir. It was part of the Croton Aqueduct system. Now, it was gone by 1900, but imagine... It was surrounded by large, expensive homes, and Mm. they were staring into this reservoir. They would, of course, turn the reservoir into something elegant uh, with a little strolling path along the top of it. And later, of course, into the New York Public Library. Much later in the story, yes. More importantly to the whole neighborhood, as we alluded to earlier, were the churches in this new moneyed district. The most prominent being St. Patrick's Cathedral between 50th and 51st on 5th Avenue. Then you had St. Thomas's Church at 53rd. It had been there since 1870. Then 5th Avenue Presbyterian, which was constructed in 1875 at 55th Street and 5th Avenue. So you actually have a lot of these beautiful marble churches mixed here in between the houses. So it is a leafy, affluent residential district with churches and beautiful townhouses And some standalone mansions. And some standalone mansions. Now, this would create an interesting atmosphere because when did you most likely go to church? On Sundays. So if all of these families are leaving to go to the church on Sundays, what became a kind of unusual tradition, but the Sunday promenade along Fifth Avenue. They wouldn't just walk to church. They would sort of promenade well we know yes they would prom they would stroll they would promenade they would prance perhaps even because you weren't just going to church to have spiritual guidance you were also representing your family you were showing off your sunday best and we're taking some broad strokes here i'm sure that there were some people going to church just for the spiritual benefit of- oh, oh of course of course but many were going to look at the fashions so and this is an era that you know we didn't have fashion magazines per se and you didn't have photography in which to look at the latest fashions so people there were some daguerreotypes there were daguerreotypes though and i'm sure everyone in fifth avenue had a daguerreotype <laughs> Down at the Waldorf Astoria, Peacock Alley, that was one of the first spots that was famous for people gathering just to look at wealthy people's fashions and clothes. The same would happen here on Fifth Avenue and, you know, their beautiful hats and everything, and especially on Easter from Harper's Weekly in 1905. Quote, such a vast number of people come on Easter to see the Fifth Avenue churchgoers walk home from the church that the avenue in the 50s 
begins at noon to feel like Park Row at five o'clock when the Brooklynites begin to feel for the Brooklyn entrance. <laughs> Meaning it was like a it was like a traffic jam, like Grand yeah. Central Station. But people were coming just to watch people leave church. Yes. <laughs> it seems extraordinary today because we have other things to amuse us. <laughs> Back then, that was an exciting thing to, to spend your Sunday morning before they had brunch. This, of course, would evolve over the years into the annual Easter bonnet parade procession that happens on Fifth Avenue. A tradition that still exists today. Although today it's just for Easter, I, I didn't realize that it used to be every Sunday. Well, there would be guidebooks as early as the 1880s that would draw tourists to head to Fifth Avenue to see this spectacle. In fact, by the 1890s, there were even guided tours of Fifth Avenue just guiding tourists up the street to marvel at the wealthy in their latest Paris fashions. And, of course, to look at all of these sumptuous houses. Wow, I love the thought of tourists in the 1890s taking a guided tour of Midtown. <laughs> uh, can you, by any chance, Greg, give us a little guided oh, tour? Oh, yeah, I'll be your tour guide. Um, let's just sit ourselves somewhere vaguely in the 1890s somewhere, and let's walk by some notable historic homes that I think you would like to see. Fantastic. We will start at... 511 Fifth Avenue. That's at 43rd Street. Okay. Okay. This mansion that sat here was owned by William Boss Tweed. Oh. The famous boss of Tammany Hall, who eventually got arrested and convicted for his mass crimes of corruption and graft. However, do you remember the portion of his story? And by the way, we have a whole podcast on this as well. But there's a portion of his story where he escapes from jail. Yes. Or escaped from his home when he ran home to get some more clothes. Right, right. He So this is the home he escaped from. Oh. Years later, this house was purchased by a man named Richard T. Wilson, who was known for a few things, perhaps most principally as the patriarch of a family who married well. He, His daughter married Cornelius Vanderbilt III, Another daughter married into the Goulet family, then a son married into the Astor family, okay? And they all lived here on Fifth Avenue. They were actually known as the Marrying Wilsons. Mothers would shield their children as they walked by. <laughs> here comes a Wilson. Oh, I should also have mentioned, by the way, that Wilson um, was best known as being the Commissary General of the Confederate States during the Civil War. So I'll just put that there. Let's keep moving. Shall we? Let's go up to 578 Fifth Avenue. Now, that is at the southwest corner of 47th Street. That's the entrance of the Diamond Exchange today. Now, this mansion that sat here was one of the f very first mansard roofs in all of New York. Oh. <laughs> it was built by former mayor George Opdyke. In 1869. Now, he had been mayor of New York City during the draft riots. In fact, I, I don't believe he comes out very kindly in our retelling of the draft riots because he was kind of ineffective. But he introduced New York to the mansard roof? Well, yeah. So his house that sat here had the mansard roof and it had those two distinctive gas lampposts in front of it that distinguish all houses of mayors in New York City. Well, in 1880... After he died, the house was purchased by rascally financier Jay Gould. Ah. So Jay Gould lived here. And I think it's interesting when I read descriptions of this house and of him living there, they all have to point out the fact that it was an unexciting address because, of course, all of the mansions up the street had ballrooms. They were always entertaining. It was quite lively at night. But this was just Mr. Gould and his wife and his huge family. And so it was, the lights were out by like 8 p.m. Wow, lights out early at the Gould House. So let's go to a more notorious address, if you can imagine, up the street to the northeast corner of Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street. Now that, of course, is very close to St. Patrick's Cathedral. It also happens to be the home of Anne Lohman, a.k.a. Madame Restel, ah, yes. the abortionist of Fifth Avenue, who died here in her house in 1878. She committed suicide in the bathtub. Spoiler alert. And we have an entire <laughs> show on Madame Restel. 
Now, starting here around 52nd Street and going all the way up to 59th Street, this is referred to specifically as Vanderbilt Row. For the Vanderbilt family would build all sorts of mansions up and down the street here. I was wondering when we were going to get to the Vanderbilts. We've spoken at length about the Astors, the Goulds, many other big families here, and we haven't really talked about the Vanderbilts. Well, this was the Vanderbilts' domain, the 50s. The 50s along 5th. Right. Vanderbilt Row. Now, one of the finer Vanderbilt houses here actually was across the street from Madame Ristel's old townhouse at 660 Fifth Avenue. Although the house was completed in 1882, just a few years after Ristel died. It was built for William Kissam Vanderbilt and designed by Richard Morris Hunt. Now, this is a name that would be associated with many of the mansions up and down the street, perhaps one of the most prominent architects of this style of home. And so a lot of the houses would look somewhat similar because they were Richard Morris Hunt's house. And of course, Hunt would design their house up at Newport or wherever their other houses were. And this was not seen as a bad thing. It was a, it was seen as an accomplishment that you could get Hunt in the first place yeah. Oh yeah, to design your... Your palace. He, yeah, he was... He was in demand. He was in demand, hotly desired. The house here was nicknamed the Petit Chateau, although it was not petite in any sense of the word that we would know. Now, opening night at the house, yes, because houses it had... had an opening <laughs> night? There was a ball for a housewarming, perhaps you'd call it, but they were really treating it like a big party. On March 26th, 1883... Uh, held in the famed dining hall of the house, is notable because almost single-handedly, this party helped define the Vanderbilts as New York's defining aristocratic clan. Whoa, that's quite a claim. Did Mrs. Astor know about this? She was certainly invited, but she was none too pleased. Just south of this, they all just lived so close to each other, between 51st and 52nd on the western side, were the series of buildings known as the Vanderbilt Triple Palace at 640 and 642 Fifth Avenue. And then the third building was on 2 West 52nd Street. Dripping in Italian style. This was built for William Henry Vanderbilt, his wife, and his two daughters. And they had adjoining rooms, actually. They were separate houses, but they had rooms that could be adjoined for big fancy balls. It was also famed for its art gallery. So it was one of the first museums, really, on Fifth Avenue, albeit, you know, not Not open to the public. (laughs) No. The grandest, though, of all the Vanderbilt houses was up on Fifth Avenue at 1 West 57th Street on the northwest corner. This was built for Cornelius Vanderbilt II, the grandson of Commodore, the original Vanderbilt, and was the largest private residence in New York City. It was built by Richard Morris Hunt and George Post. Post would become quite renowned for some of the early skyscraper designs in New York City. He even designed the New York World Building for the for the newspaper, which became the tallest building in the world when it was constructed in 1889. So Post was not intimidated by building a luxurious residence for Vanderbilt. Not at all. And because it was the largest, mm-hmm. you know, this was really a calling card for, for these men and, of course, for the Vanderbilt. And it was constructed in 1883. It was six stories tall, because we all need homes that are six stories tall. And of course, it had a garden, stable, the most luxurious residence in New York during the Gilded Age. And this house, believe it or not, would sit at this very important intersection for decades, well into the 20th century. And Vanderbilts would live here the whole time. So the Vanderbilts really defined the Midtown Manhattan mansions along Fifth Avenue for the Gilded Age. Right. But the funny thing is, of course, that they wouldn't stop at this boundary that you've set for us at 59th Street and the entry to Central Park uh, for Fifth Avenue obviously continues northward because really in the 1890s and then the first decade or two of the 20th century... New York's prominent families, sometimes these same families, Mm -hmm. would get rid of their midtown mansions and build them along Central Park, along Fifth Avenue from 59th up to, you know, around 96th Street. And the family who took us here 
to the park's edge was no less than the Astor family. Because remember that family feud that was playing out down at 34th and 5th Avenue? Well, when Mrs. William B. Astor finally gave in uh, in 1895 and planned to demolish her home to make way for the Astoria half of the Waldorf Astoria, she obviously needed a replacement home. And she hired Richard Morris Hunt, who you just mentioned, to build her a new lavish home in a French chateau style at 65th and 5th Avenue at the northeast corner. And it really did look like a French chateau plunked down on the grid with its mansard roof, the loggias, enormous windows, its own art gallery as well that doubled as a ballroom. And she shared this home with her son, John Jacob, and his family. That became the new center of New York society. And unsurprisingly, society would follow Mrs. Astor up to the park's edge. So all of a sudden, the entrance to Central Park was, I mean, it was never a real barrier anyway. But now people of great wealth would now exploit all the real estate that ran up the eastern end of New York's greatest park. And in our next show, we'll pick it up from here, the 1890s and the opening of Mrs. William B. Astor's home and the many families who followed. Family names that we have not yet mentioned. Families with even newer wealth, from the Fricks to the Carnegies. But we'll also be looking at what happened to the mansions that these families built farther downtown. What happened to those stretches of Fifth Avenue at its base in Lower Midtown and in Midtown that transformed it into the Fifth Avenue that we know today. We've presented the rise of Fifth Avenue's many glorious mansions. In the next show, we shall give you the fall. Join us on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, and join us as well on Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys, where for a small monthly donation, you'll get extra audio bonus features uh, from us, sometimes continuing to speak about the subjects of our show and sometimes just talking about other things entirely that have nothing <laughs> to do with the show. We have a special podcast feed that's just for our patrons. So you can join us with your support at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And it's because of the support of our patrons that Greg and I have been able to produce so many more shows in 2017 than ever before. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.